Welcome to our continuing 2021 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Melody Malike, MSHS, President of Revenue Cycle Coding Strategies, LLC. She is a frequent speaker and author for nationally recognized professional organizations and publications. Melody's areas of expertise include coding and compliance management engineering and operations improvement, and she is nationally recognized for her extensive compliance expertise. Melody often speaks at national conferences on many topics, including interventional and diagnostic radiology coding, internal audit program development, coding compliance, and other healthcare compliance issues. Recent speaking engagements include the Association of Community Cancer Centers, AHRA, the Association for Imaging Management, Radiology Business Management Association, RBMA, HBMA, and the Radiological Society of North America, RSNA. Melody is the AHRA liaison to the American College of Radiology Economics Commission. Melody is a frequent author for national publications and writes the bi-monthly coding column for AHRA Radiology Management and the Healthcare Billing Management Association, HBMA Billing. Her work has also appeared in RT Image, Imaging Economics, Radiology Today, and Radiology Business Journal. Melody co-authored Revenue Cycle Coding Strategies Coding Guide for Diagnostic Radiology and Interventional Radiology. Prior to her current position, Melody held the position of Vice President of Billing Coding for the largest national billing company, where she was responsible for the implementation, oversight, and maintenance of the billing compliance program. Melody holds a Master of Science in Health Systems degree and a Bachelor of Industrial Engineering degree, both from Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech in Atlanta. She also holds the professional certification of Certified Radiology Administrator, Certified Professional Coder, Certified Professional Co Coder Hospital, and Radiology Certified Coder. Melody has achieved fellow status with AHRA, is a recent recipient of the prestigious AHRA Gold Award for her organizational and industry contributions. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that at FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals, and every month we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja recognition. Here we turn the spotlight on to Super Ninja Betty M. Perryman, Administrator at Southern Avenue Family Practice. Betty says, I have worked with my doctor for many years and have really enjoyed the interaction with the patients. We have a concierge practice and we are able to spend more time with the patients when they come in. Our staff has been together for a long time and we work well as a team and it's a privilege working with them. Congratulations, Betty. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEUs certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There's no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available on the side or upper panel of your screen. So Melody, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Catherine, and thank you for the opportunity. 
So today, everybody, what we're really going to be going through is a very high level, but really important focus on really the one, two, threes of coding and billing and auditing. So it's different for every specialty in terms of what your concerns or areas of interest are. But regardless of the specialty or regardless of the practice setting, we want to make sure that we're doing things correctly to protect the organization. So really, you know, today we're going to kind of talk about the, the key issues for coding's but focus on it from a non-coder perspective, recognizing that, that really most of you are coming at it, you're from an administrative standpoint, you may be a clinician, there are you know, different roles and responsibilities, but all of it's important. And regardless of your role and responsibility, you have to make sure things are accurate for the organization. So we'll talk about how do you audit that coding process? What are the roles and responsibilities in that charge capture, in that coding process? And what's a way to really start diving into it? You you know, how do you how do you jump in? Because it can really seem overwhelming when you think about all the different areas where there might be opportunities to improve compliance or improve your processes with it. And then we'll also talk about that 60 day repayment rule, because, you know, part of the challenge with compliance is you identify opportunities, you identify things that need to be fixed. But when you identify those things, you have an obligation uh, to not only fix them going forward, but sometimes you got to go back and actually make Make that financial repayment when you've received uh, revenue for things that you shouldn't have. So it's not just a situation of, of we fixed it, that's great, it's not going to happen again. You know, sometimes there are implications with it. Whether it was intentional or not, uh, sometimes those things happen uh, that we have to address. So we want to go through the guidelines for that. Well, we'd like to think about the business of medicine being pretty straightforward, right? We provide care for a patient. And we get paid for it really easy, right? We'd love to say that, you know, as we think about these things, that it's that it's a straightforward line, um, you know, from that particular component, but we're not. And as I showed, there's the stuff in between, it's a little bit messy um, with it, but all those things have value uh, as part of that particular process as well. And so getting from point A to point B can be a little bit challenging, but that's what we want to break down. What happens in between? What happens between that time we see that patient and the time that their bill goes out the door, and really even from the time the bill goes out the door until we get a zero balance and everything in between. And the other thing to think about is we refer to that as that patient's financial experience. So you have the clinical experience where they're face-to-face -face with a provider and, and you know, how long did it take to get back from the waiting room and how much time did the provider spend with them and were they happy with how the physician or, or provider interacted with them? Did they felt listened to? All those things come into play when you think about surveys. But then that other piece of it is how happy were they with their financial experience? Did they feel they were billed for the right level of service? Did they feel that it was, um, you know, an appropriate charge structure? Was it an easy process to file insurance? Uh, the collection process, all that goes into that particular component um, as well. So, you know, when you think about those key points of it, we've got clearly there's the documentation of care uh, that happens by our providers. You've got turning that care into actual codes that go to the insurance company. We want to make sure that whatever we're submitting supports medical necessity uh, for that patient. And then looking at the process to make sure that the payers are paying us appropriately. Um, we've got contracts with payers with that. And, and they've agreed to, we've agreed to provide services for the patients. Uh, we've agreed to charge certain things or accept certain types of reimbursement, but they've agreed to pay certain things within a certain period of time. So we've got to monitor that process as well to make sure that both sides are putting part, uh, you know, keeping up their end of the bargain, so to speak. When we think about coding, you know, a frequent comment back is, well, I'm not a coder, right? I don't need to worry about it. Well, you got to think about what that process is. And, and really, a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today are about process. No one gets up at the beginning of the day and says, gee, I want to submit incorrect uh, bills to the to an insurance payer. At least if they do, they're probably not listening to this audio web because they're not interested in doing the right thing. But, you know, people really aren't that, you know, they don't really look at it from that standpoint. We're thinking about it more about, you know, what's our workflow? How do we capture our charges? How does our system come into play uh, related to capturing those charges? And how do we make sure that whoever participates in that process 
understands and, and has the education and resources that they need to do their job correctly um, with it. And again, it really comes back to process. So anytime that we find an opportunity to improve something, it's important to think about not just, it's not a finger pointing exercise, but rather how did it happen so that we can fix our systems so that we can do better next time. So for example, we think about documentation. How do we document within our system? Is it a lot of free text or are there actually templates that are used as part of that process? And templates themselves are not bad as long as they're used appropriately um, with it. You know, how do our medical assistants and the nursing staff actually document into the system? And are we putting those key components in there? And even though, you know, the guidelines for ENM changed effective 2021, there's still, the clinical information should go into the patient's record, even if we're not necessarily using it in the same way that we did before from a coding standpoint. So why are they there for that particular visit? You know, what's their past history, their review of systems, you know, their history of present illness, physical exam, all those things. And then the orders for any services, whether it's, you know, advanced imaging studies, any type of other diagnostic services, orders for consultation from someone else, all that goes in there. And then on the coding side of it, looking at the procedure codes, whether it's an ENM visit, which is what drives the majority, the vast majority of our office-based uh, services, but there could be procedures that are done. And then looking at the diagnosis codes for it. You know, diagnosis codes is telling the story of that patient. Why, why are we taking care of that patient today? And there's always going to be a primary reason that they're coming in, but what are the secondaries as well? And sometimes people tend to wanna just provide, we kind of call it one and done of saying, okay, this is the whole reason they're there, but that additional information tells a story about that patient and provides more context. I mean, taking care of a patient who has underlying um, diseases or underlying comorbidities, such as, you know, you think about a patient who has diabetes or you think about, you know, many, many other things. It, again, it's not a, a discrete list. They could have cancer, they could have COPD, congestive heart failure, the list goes on. All of those things are relevant to how our physician is taking care of that patient, which shows medical necessity. So that secondary information for diagnosis codes becomes really important, but it all has to be in that documentation when we look at that piece of it. So when we think about medical documentation, and this goes all the way back, and you could say, boy, 1996 was a long time ago, and that's true, uh, but it's still very relevant where Medicare published this and said, and I gotta love how they kind of started and said, despite controversy and protest, you don't typically see that in CMS verbiage, despite controversy and protest, we will maintain and continue to reinforce the position that those providers who build the Medicare program are accountable for the documentation to support the payment of a claim. Our position has been and will continue to be that the documentation of services is not a burden imposed by the government. So that, you know, there's always been that, you know, we hear about administrative burden and we hear about people really pushing back saying, well, gee, they really, they, you know, the government or whomever wants me to document all this stuff. Their, their position is, providing and following standard medical practice, standard documentation is not something that's a burden. They're just saying they expect it to be there because it's communicating the story of what was done for the patient. But think about it nowadays in our electronic world, which the vast majority of organizations are in, um, with that, there are still some exceptions, but with that, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to document than it used to be. I mean, in 1996, electronic medical records were not that prevalent. We had it um, in hospitals, in a lot of hospitals, but not everywhere. Um, but we knew that, you know, again, wasn't as easy. But medical necessity, you know, documentation in addition to everything else. So CMS says everything should be in there. But one thing that they're always going to focus on within there, too, is medical necessity. A lot of pieces that go into the definition related to medical necessity with it, but the but the really the primary piece is that it meets but does not exceed the patient's medical need. And, and what gets challenging about that is that's where it becomes sometimes subjective. I mean, some things are objective. They're, they may be pretty clear cut, but for other things, it could be subjective. And it's really, you know, Medicare has their definition, but so do individual payers. And when that conflicts with the provider's definition, that's where sometimes we get into challenges, we may have to talk to the payer about it, but when it comes down to medical necessity, it really boils down to their definition that it meets, 
but doesn't exceed the patient's need. And just because we can doesn't mean the payer wants to pay for it. So uh, sometimes we call things leading edge, bleeding edge, where it may be the right thing for the patient. And it could be that the payers just haven't caught up to it yet, which definitely sometimes happens uh, related to that. But that definition of medical necessity is definitely one to keep in mind because that's an ongoing piece with it. So how do we make sure that we're documenting medical necessity? Well, we don't wanna, sometimes I've heard providers say, well, just, just tell me what to say and I'll say it. Well, we don't wanna do that. There, there's not really magic words, right? It's not just tell me what to say, just tell the story about the patient, right? So document, what do we know about this patient at the time of the encounter? Give us as much detail as possible. You know, how acute is the condition? How, you know, how long have they had it for? You know, all these things are relevant with it. Again, we're not asking for anything additional to check a box, but we really want to know everything about that patient. And then document the decision points when we think about, you know, the code selection. What we mean by that is we're thinking about, you know, medical decision making. Well, we have to be able to show the different components of medical decision making related to that. How many problems did they have? What type of data was actually reviewed? What, where does that patient fall in the table of risk? I mean, you're not going to say that on the table of risk, they were moderate. But if you have the assignment or the ordering prescribing of, you know, certain types of medication, that's going to put them into a high level um, on the table of risk and things like that. And, and then documenting the whole sequence, that whole decision process of what types of um, analysis was done for that patient or evaluation of done with that patient. You know, just as an example, and granted this is back a few years, but it's it's important when we think about some of these situations. We had a cardiologist that got their reimbursement increase from Medicare, um, sorry about that, um, by 22,000 by using the phrase acute systolic congestive heart failure in their documentation. So this related to um, assisting a, a facility with DRGs and things like that. Again, we only wanna use the words that are accurate to make sure that things are correct with it. Um, so when we look at medical record documentation, we got to have a little humor here. Um, you always hear these term clone notes and clone notes. Uh, you got to be careful with medical records. It can't be that if you and I, if they pulled up both of our medical records together, they should not look the same, right? I mean, you and I are different people. We've got different backgrounds. We've got different um, clinical histories. Um, all those things are going to come into play. So it shouldn't be a situation where with those clone notes that, you know, everything looks exactly the same. So everything should be patient specific and encounter specific um, related to that. So that's something that's really important. And if you've never seen those pictures, when people try to do those panoramic pictures, it can create some pretty interesting um, feedback on some of those pictures with it. But yeah, cloning, we just got to make sure it's cap, it's correct. So when you think about within our systems, this is, we start at the basics. Where do we get this information from? So how do we capture the data? Um, and where does it come from? So, and, and information, even when we think about diagnosis information, sometimes there's drop-down menus, for example, or places where we're selecting diagnosis information for the patient. That could be done in scheduling. That could be done as part of the encounter with the patient. That could be part of the physician's end of documentation. But where does that information pull from if it's an electronic process for you? Now, if you say, well, we have a coder, they actually abstract from the physician's document documentation, that's great. Um, you don't have an issue for it. But if you've got any type of interface where it's pulling, it's important to know where it's come from. And so what data actually even gets seen by the performing provider, whether we're in a hospital setting or in a physician office, you know, where, when you set up an electronic record, the vendors don't tell you the best way to do it, right? Because they're really a, a means to an end. It's their job to provide a tool it's not necessarily their job to tell you how to maximize it. And they do that for a lot of reasons. One is liability um, related to it, but you're gonna have to set it up. So it's important to make sure you're setting it up correctly and making sure that the provider can see what's really relevant for it and hopefully make it as efficient for our providers as possible. We wanna minimize the number of clicks, right? So you hear that where they talk about the number of clicks and how much time it takes. We wanna make it as efficient as possible for our providers so they don't have to spend all their time looking at a screen instead of looking at the patient. 
think about what data gets pulled forward, maybe from a previous visit. Do we get an interim history pulled forward? Um, you know, what, what is allowed? And again, there are some things that are appropriate to pull forward with this kind of stuff. And then what does the screen show at the point of authentication? In other words, as everything is done, as the provider is in essence signing off on that encounter with the patient, what do they see when they're going through that process? And how can we create templates for the providers to make it as easy as possible, but with accuracy, right? I mean, that becomes really important because I, I knew of a case one time in a, in a particular practice where every single patient, because of a template, got a prostate exam including the women. Well, that would be a problem, right? So you got to think about making sure those templates are set up correctly uh, with it. And so customization based on specialty, based on provider, what they typically see is very appropriate um, with it. Templates are designed to guide, not to be in replacement of appropriate documentation when taking care of a patient for that. You know, other things to think about, and this comes up with setting up systems. Um, and this goes back again, I know some of the references are a couple of years old, but the guidelines are still in play and are very important. It says, is there an official policy or guideline that requires providers to record a written diagnosis in lieu of an ICD-10 code? And the reason that question came up is when, especially as things are being upgraded for ICD-10 and things like that, if you selected a code, you know, that would give you clinical information or vice versa with it. And again, that's not a replacement. I mean, can can you tie those together? You are, but remember, providers have a responsibility to provide clinical documentation about a patient, which ultimately will lead to a code assignment. Um, they shouldn't do, be just selecting a code, right? I mean, we got to make sure that the clinical information is correct about that particular patient with it. So when we think about why do we code the way that we do or how to what guidelines do we follow to make sure that we're submitting things appropriately to a payer, whether that's CMS, whether that's anybody else uh, from a process standpoint, so we look at what's authoritative. Authoritative are the things that we have to do, right? So authoritative guidance comes from the American Medical Association. The AMA owns the CPT codes. They update them on an annual basis. They give us a variety of different publications with that, the CPT book, CPT assistant, cl you know, clinical examples in radiology, for example. They give us the insider's view. I mean, there's a whole lot of ways that they give us that information. And then also the American Hospital Association. And that's not just for hospitals. They actually are part of a group that gives us authoritative guidance for all things diagnosis coding related. So anything diagnosis coding relating, the AHA um, guidelines actually give us, they actually have a publication called AHA Coding Clinic for ICD-10. And then the payers, he who has the gold makes the rules, they give us guidance as well. And keep in mind that Medicare is in essence our largest payer. So CMS guidelines, we've got all of our private insurance payer guidelines with that. And it's important to keep in mind that if a payer provides us something in writing, their rules apply even over the AMA and even over the American Hospital Association. Everything after that's an opinion. Anything I say is an opinion if I can't back it up with authoritative guidance. And that's sometimes frustrating because our specialty societies will appropriately weigh in, give guidance, et cetera, but that's an opinion Again, if it's not part of one of the authoritative guidance with that. So just be careful to think about what you follow and why you follow it. Um, other thing to think about in our world is there are a ton of acronyms. I mean, we could spend a whole hour just talking about all the wonderful acronyms with it. Figure out your acronyms that are relevant. Uh, give yourself a, a guide uh, related to that. But there's definitely a lot of acronyms, uh, you know, from the payer standpoint as well as from a regulatory standpoint. From a coding standpoint, just to mention some certifications, because some of you may already have professional coders. Some of you may be evaluating getting professional coders. Um, the most popular ones, when we think about it, especially on the physician side, you've got your CPC, your Certified Professional Coder from the American Academy of Professional Coders with that. They also have a lot of specialty certifications included as well. So if you are in a practice that is a very specific type of practice, it, you may want to get a coder who has a specialty specific certification. Um, in addition to the CPC, there's also the CPCI, which is an instructor and a certified outpatient coder, COC. That used to be called CPC Hospital um, as well. So the CPCH and COC really are the same thing. They just renamed it. Um, there's also the radiology certified coder um, through um, the Radiology Coding Certification Board. And there also is an RCCIR. 
Um, AHIMA has several certifications. The most popular on the physician side is the Certified Coding Specialist Physician. And then there's also a physician practice manager certification as well. This is just the beginning. There's a whole lot of other certifications out there, but you want to support a certification that's relevant for your organization. Um, some people will go get a lot of certifications to have them and that's fine and dandy, but it needs to be relevant. So you think about, you know, okay, maybe I have a certified coder, maybe I don't. What do I need to do to stay on top of things? And, you know, some of the statistics that came back, this is from the National Institute of Health, actually, that said that even a single 90-minute education session is effective for preparing people with limited experience to competently bill and code. So, yes, there's a lot of detail that goes into some specifically specialty coding, but high level, you can get a high level view in about 90 minutes of the big picture things that you want to make sure that you look at um, related to it. And keep in mind that education is never over. It's ongoing. We're all, you always hear that. We're always learning all the time. Same thing goes on though with coding, auditing, and billing. It is ongoing. Payers always change their rules. The government updates things. AMA updates things. Could be new codes for procedures, new guidelines. You might get feedback from an audit. All of that information uh, needs to be incorporated into it so it is an ongoing process. But even though it may not be authoritative guidance, it is something that you want to leverage all the resources that are available for you. So, for example, I mean, if you look for any particular medical specialty, if you go to their website, you're going to see resources. So, for example, for OBGYN, there is a button for practice management um, on their website. And actually, I would say most specialty societies have a practice management resource um, related to that. So that's a very important um, you know, place to go look for that information. Um, other specialty societies that are out there that you can belong to, um, MGMA is one, Medical Group Management Association, that's not specialty specific, that, that covers a lot of different places, they have a lot of resources um, as well, I mean I'm not advocating membership in any particular uh, specialty group, but just letting you know what's aware, again, if you're part of a billing company, HBMA is a great one, so you have to find what's relevant for you and your organization to go get the resources that you need but there's a lot of support um, related to that to get that information. You know, getting some of the industry resources, the AMA, American Medical Association, has publications that are out there. This is an example of some of the uh, authoritative guidance that we talked about earlier. Obviously, there's actual the codes themselves. There's the CPT books. There's clinical examples. There's the insider's changes. You know, none of these are crazy expensive. So it, it's, there's really, you can't use cost as a reason to not be up to date on the industry resources that you need. But also looking at your payer websites. Um, definitely, definitely go to your payer websites. They publish a lot of information um, with that. You can also sign up for emails to come for them. I mean, I personally am signed up for a lot of different uh, payers with it and get emails on a daily basis from payers. A lot of it you kind of weed through and you don't necessarily need, uh, but there's a lot of gems of information in there as well that you wanna make sure you're looking at. So again, Whatever payers you have, your largest payers, definitely reach out, make sure you're looking at their website with frequency or somebody within your organization is um, with it because when they audit you, they will audit against things that they have provided to you. Um, as either a contracted member or if it's public information related to it. So you can't definitely, you can't say, well, we didn't know with it. So when we think about kind of coding 101, so to speak, you know, keep in mind that codes really are used for more than just reimbursement. It's not, am I going to get paid or not? Clearly, that's important um, with it, but it's also, it drives their coverage policies, their collecting that data and analyzing it, um, there's a lot of ways that data gets used. So keep in mind, every time we submit a claim, it's not only used with that payer, but ultimately that information gets used for research and things um, as well. I mean, where do you think a lot of that data comes from that talks about, you know, patients with this particular clinical condition also have this clinical condition? When we think about, you know, being supported in the medical record, we don't code based on just what's covered, right? We don't just say, well, what, what are they going to pay for? And, and I've, unfortunately, I found that to be the case with some practices. They just want to do what's easiest, quickest, and I hear you, that'd be nice, but we've got to make sure that it's actually supported. So we don't just pick what's covered 
for the sake of that. I mean, if that's if if I have two clinical conditions and one's covered and one's not, it is appropriate to put that covered diagnosis first, but I'm not going to make, make something up with it. And I'm not going to pick something that's close um, related to it. And I don't put on modifiers just to make sure I get paid if it's not appropriate. Everything I do, I've got to defend. My dramatic statement for coding is always, you code what you're comfortable sitting across from the FBI agent defending, right? Makes it pretty dramatic, but you think about how do you defend what you do? So you got to be able to say, well, we did that because of X, not because so-and-so told me um, this was going to make sure I get paid, but always be able to answer that question and defend why you did what you did. Um, so when we think about, you know, what are what are the key things? We've got our E&M, which is a lot of the services that are done, as well as procedures. So we think about our visits, you know, that whole issue of new versus established patient. We have that three-year mark coming into play. So that three-year mark that says if we've seen a patient within three years, the same tax ID, same specialty, et cetera, that's going to be an established patient. Be very careful when we're marking patients as new patients and be really careful that it truly is a new patient. Yes, we're getting paid a higher level because it's expected that we're kind of starting over, so to speak, in terms of history and the amount of data that's going to be required. Uh, Medicare has always been focused on uh, medical necessity being the overarching criteria. And now with the 2021 EM guidelines, we either for outpatient visits are either using medical necessity or time as our primary factor specifically for that. And so they've, they've put into practice working together with the AMA to ensure that that's really come into play with it. The other thing we want to make sure that when we look at performing providers, supervising providers, especially as we're using non-physician practitioners or advanced practitioners um, related to that, that we're using those appropriately in the correct place of service. So, for example, if we're in a place of service 11, which is a freestanding or office with that, you can do incident two in a place of service 11. If it is in a place of service 22 or 21, so whether we're inpatient, outpatient, we can't do incident two. There is no incident two in a hospital setting. We can only do shared visits. We can do shared visits in a place of service 11 as well, though typically you're going to see it more as incident two. But again, shared visits are going to come into play. So we want to make sure that we're doing those appropriately and we're billing for those appropriately. If we're billing a visit on the and a procedure on the same date of service, we're going to have to put a modifier 25 on that ENM visit, but we're going to have to be really crystal clear that it truly there is a separate and distinct visit significant enough above and beyond that pre and post work associated with that procedure to justify it. Um, unfortunately, I see situations where people automatically bill an E&M visit in conjunction with a procedure, and how are you defending it? You can't just say, well, gee, I saw the patient. Well, that doesn't matter. Is it enough to really justify a separate E&M visit? So that's important as you're looking at that process with it. So just looking at that patient, just to confirm that you can do a minor procedure or deciding to do a minor procedure, but that being the extent of the visit, again, is not going to support that particular service for it. So it, that's already included in the reimbursement of that procedure itself and doesn't get us a separate uh, visit specifically for it. So again, that evaluation's already included in that particular component for it. When we look at the procedure coding itself, that really comes back to the CPT manual. All of that's in the code set that's developed by the American Medical Association. And one of the things that, that how we use those codes and things, Medicare very much has a hand in kind of influencing. And they don't get to decide at all, but they influence by Medicare. And the way that they do that is they put bundling edits in place. So the bundling edits are driven by Medicare. Private payers can set up their own bundling edits um, with that, but know that most tend to fall back on those National Correct Coding Initiative edits. Uh, CMS defines global days uh, related to those particular ones. Uh, with that, how many days is included in that reimbursement of that procedure code? And then the supervision requirements that we just mentioned, they indicate how those come into play as well. So when we look at the NCCI edits, you do need to look at the NCCI policy manual. Um, it's, it's out there, it's been out there, and it gets updated every December with it. And it does give specific guidelines and says, okay, you've got to use this information when reporting services to Medicare patients. One thing to keep in mind is that it'll talk about and it'll mention physicians, 
but Medicare uses that as a generic term, and they even indicate that in the beginning of the policy manual. Sorry about that. <clears throat> indicate at the beginning of the policy manual that that applies to any providers um, with it. And, and again, it tells us to follow the information in the Medicare, um, you know, in the CBT manual, unless they have stuff that contradicted. And we do see situations where CMS and the AMA disagree. Uh, from time to time. And so when they do, unfortunately, we have to follow those Medicare guidelines um, with that unless we can try to lobby and get those changed with it. Um, the other thing when we think about these um, procedure codes, this also relates to a lot of our quality measures and drive things related to quality measures, um, you know, related to that. So keep in mind that, you know, those come into play when we think about MACRA and MIPS. So there's a lot of other ways that some of the procedure piece comes into play. And when we think about MACRA and MIPS, we're still on that two-year lag where what we're doing today is going to be impacting our, not just reimbursement, but, but our adjustments um, in the future. So, you know, there's that behind the scenes going on, calculating all that data for macro and MIPS, and you may be getting a bonus um, with it, or you may be getting a reduction. And hopefully you're in the bonus situation, but keep in mind what we do today does impact us two years from now with it. Um, ICD-10, as we've mentioned, is very important uh, to all the things that we're doing um, with that, and it's not a one and done uh, for it. So this is communicating medical necessity, and again, this is going to be used for a lot of different things with it. With diagnosis coding, we want to have as much details as possible, um, location, context, uh, content, severity, story, all of that's relevant. We have a whole lot of codes in the code set, and as more detailed we can be, the better we tell the story of that patient's severity with it. And, and again, the more we show medical necessity. I mean, we are moving towards an environment where severity will drive reimbursement um, with that. So thinking about what's the primary reason the patient was seen, what are the chronic conditions that are going to impact that medical decision making? What are that patient's risk factors? What, what is having to be factored into account as we're taking care of that patient? And then additionally, what information is required by that particular code set um, related to it or the performance measure with it? So all this becomes important. And again, those templates or those pieces of it uh, definitely can come into play with it. So it seems pretty straightforward, right? We do all those things, we get all that information, everything's accurate, that's awesome. Well, why? You know, well, besides the fact we want to do the right thing, we also recognize that there's a whole lot of entities that can potentially audit us, and it's really true, from ZPICs and RACs and CERTs and MACs and MICs and OIG and FBI, and they really do. All these organizations do different things, and they have different roles and responsibilities and different things that they focus on when they come in. Um, are some worse than others? Yes, actually they are. Like when a ZPICs come in, ZPICs thinks there's fraud, and that's what they're coming in to look at. Um, but but that doesn't mean that we don't take all the others seriously, even including whistleblowers, which means you could have a disgruntled employee um, that believes that something's done incorrectly and, and they want to make sure and evaluate something being done. So again, there's a lot of different groups and, and that private payers, all of your payers have the right and the ability to audit your claims um, as part of that. So we want to make sure that we're doing things correctly. So we think about our compliance myths uh, the False Claims Act, FCA, uh, it's a myth to say it doesn't apply to accidents. Well, it could. Um, if I'm a low-volume provider, I won't be on their radar. If there's no regulation, there's no need for compliance uh, related to that. Um, the coder or consultant said it was okay. You know, I'm in good situation. Where I came from, we were paid. Um, all those things are really compliance myths related to that. We can't fall back on those things. There is nobody too small. There is no error. There's kind of that right, wrong, and sloppy. But even if we're sloppy, that could invite an audit, and we want to make sure that we're doing things correctly for it. Why? Because we can get into trouble damages. Um, so if, if the government believes their intent, they can do triple damages. So that could add uh, $5,500 to $11,000 per false claim. So you quickly see that that adds up. For example, if I took a, a duplex study, and I had 500 charges that I did in my practice. Let's say I'm a vascular surgeon. And I normally get paid 185 for that. And so that comes out to 92,500. If they decide to triple that, 
that's $278,000, not including penalties, fines, assessments, cost of investigation, et cetera. So I don't share all that to be scary or to say this is always going to happen, but just to say that that it can quickly spiral out of control. So when we we want to identify the problems for, for other people do um, with it, that's why we want to audit, right? It's not, we can't take that head in the sand approach of, well, if I don't know about it, then nobody can get onto me about it. You know, no, you want to find your own problems because it's a much more powerful story that if you do get audited, and I will tell you, most people say it's not a matter of if you get audited, it's when you get audited. Um, related to that, you want to make sure that you've identified it. And why? Because of the compliance guidance. So the OIG uh, years back published specific compliance guidance for us, and this actually goes back to the year 2000. And you could say, well, gee, that's a long time ago. It is. It's quite a few years ago, but it's still the guidance that's out there. So there is a compliance program guidance for individual and small group physician practices. There's one specifically for third-party billing companies, and there's ones for here because they believe that it's what organizations need to use uh, to guide. So you want to have this. You want to build your own compliance plan so that you're showing due diligence to identify your own problems. And again, we got to have a little humor. It's not a one-size-fits-all. So what may work with this 10-doc dermatology practice may be totally different from a three-person OBGYN practice. Um, related to that. So you have to find what works for you and what's appropriate based on your specialty, your size, and what your potential risk factors are with it. So at a bare minimum, what you need to identify and address um, with your compliance program is what's your coding process. I mean, have you identified your written instructions for the entire process from point of service to billing and to zero balance? What, what do we do? That is, that's going to address everything from Insurance only, which we're not going to do. We're going to make sure we give back credit balances. You know, we're going to co collect the correct amount of money for people. But what are we coding from? How do we support what we're doing for procedure coding and ICD-10 coding? You don't need to get so much in the weeds that it becomes burdensome, but it needs to be overarching guidelines that you can point to to show that you're focused on doing the right thing making sure that you're doing your own audits um, with that. that. That shows a willingness to identify your own problems. You should always do your own internal audits and you should on a regular basis have some external audits as well. You don't have to do that every month, every quarter, but at least annually or semi-annual have someone validate. And again, it doesn't have to be a huge number. It doesn't have to be super expensive, but it needs to be something to show that you're open and willing to have someone look at things objectively of what you're doing. And if you're using any type of computer-assisted coding, that you're validating that it's accurate. I mean, it's fine to maximize technology and tools uh, with that, but we want to do it in such a way that, you know, we're, we're validating things are accurate. So we want that balanced program that's going to focus on coding, but it can also adjust. Uh, again, don't want to be too burdensome, don't want to paint yourself in a corner uh, related to those things, but you want to make sure that it is balanced. Those internal monitoring QA, let's just, let's just call it QA, where we're doing random review of documentation. Um, it may be if there's something that a particular payer is starting to focus on with denials that we focus on that. Um, when we look at compliance audits or review, we do want to have those scheduled on a routine basis, random as well. Um, and, you know, we use this as a good rule of thumb, 10, doc 10 cases per physician. So it could be 10 encounters, 10 surgeries. Um, with that, you don't have to do 100. You can start with 10, and if you need to go further, you go further. Don't do statistically valid unless you've got a, a reason to do it and you want to do those under attorney-client privilege. So sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, looking at 10 is not really sufficient. I want to make sure I do 5% or 10% of what my doctor does. That, the reason you don't want to do that is that can be extrapolated. Um, extrapolated meaning if I found, you know, let's say that I did 100 and I found an error with 20 of them, then I could, in theory, assuming that my numbers came out right, apply that to the entire universe and say that I have a problem with 20 of those and a payer could come back and say, you owe us a refund. So you're not trying to hide anything or stay away from obligation. You just want the ability to do appropriate research with it so that when you do go self-disclose or you do communicate to the provider, you've or not provider, but to the uh, payer, you've made sure that it is accurate. So you're not giving up too much uh, money in the process. So when we say beware of the fox in the hen house, just make sure whoever is looking at it 
can be objective. You don't want it to be, well, gee, I really like Dr. Smith. He's so nice. So I'm just going to pick 10 of his easy cases so I can tell him he's doing a great job. That's not helping the practice. While that may make your life easier from a conflict standpoint, it definitely doesn't make things easier for the practice. If you do find that there are error, errors, SOP, whatever it is that's causing the error, error immediately, and sometimes you need to get legal counsel. It's one thing to find a random error. It's another to find a pattern or to find a particular problem. And you want to make sure you get the right legal counsel involved. I know that it is not uh, physicians' uh, love or appreciation to involve legal counsel and stuff, but I tell you, it's, it's worth it. If you, but you got to get somebody who knows healthcare. Just like physicians specialize um, in great detail, so do attorneys. So just because somebody is somebody's friend, they were their you know, tax attorney, divorce attorney, whatever, that doesn't mean they're going to be the best attorney to deal with a particular problem. So healthcare regulatory is important. Um, somebody with that white collar focus. You've got to determine if there were any amounts that were collected in error. In other words, did we get paid for stuff we shouldn't have? Because we got to give that money back. There's never a situation where we get money from a payer that we're allowed to keep it to say, oh, well, they didn't find it. We can't do that. So what should we look at from an audit standpoint? Anything that's an outlier for us? Um, odd procedures that we're doing, high numbers of things, a certain level of modifiers, uh, you know, look at your modifier 59s, look at your 25s with that, uh, your mid-levels, always look at your mid-levels, not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's where sometimes things are building correctly. Are we always filling it under the physician, the supervising physician and never under the nurse practitioner? Well, is that appropriate? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, depends on the practice patterns with it. Things that are frequently denied, um, things that we're getting kickback from the payers on, why? Um, and also look at what the OIG is auditing. You can look on their website. They don't publish a work plan like they used to. They now just put issues out there. But if they are telling us we're really looking at EM codes or we're really looking at ultrasounds done in the office, well, do look at it yourself because that may be something they do. Payer coding alerts. Again, you know, looking at their website or looking at their emails, what are they focused on? They'll tell you. Look at it yourself. You, again, don't want to be a target of it. Or sometimes in CPT Assistant, they'll focus on clarification of things. Those are good things to go look at from that standpoint. Um, the other thing we think about the physician and non-physician practitioners um, related to it, making sure it's clear who's supervising um, that particular pace. So, for example, there's some cases where the physician or non-physician practitioner who performed an initial service and ordered a service um, that's subsequently done by somebody else is not the same person supervising it. We just got to make it sure it's clear who the supervising uh, physician is on both the electronic and the paper forms um, related to that. So that's important. Um, other things to look at, you can look at some frequency reports. You can run reports by month, by quarter, by year, looking at your volume of codes by CPT and ICD-10. Look to see where the variation Compare the physicians in the practice, especially within the same specialty. It's one thing if they specialize and certain ones do certain procedures, but if but if people's ENM levels are vastly different or the, the volumes of certain things are different, where this physician's always billing an ENM and a procedure code where this one's not, again, uh, those are things that that other people are doing electronically to evaluate you. Do it yourself. You know, look and see where those kind of things come out. Now, ENM has shifted some given that we've gone to new guidelines. So this is old um, pieces of it, but Medicare always has focused on ENM with it, and they've always liked that bell curve. Well, I don't know, again, with the ENM changes that have just occurred for 2021, I'm not sure that bell curve is going to be valid anymore. But what we do need to look at is we do need to look at our distribution to say, okay, if every single thing I'm billing is level five, is that accurate? And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Again, depending on your specialty, if everything truly is high medical necessity, that may come into play. But thinking about kind of my top 10 ENM audit observations, if I were going to say, what are some of the things that you need to look at? Um, no reason stated of why we're seeing that patient. Follow up. Follow up to what, right? Um, no interval history. So again, while history and exam are not going to drive the ENM visit level anymore, it's still relevant for good clinical care uh, for it. Having cloned review of systems or physical exam, meaning across all patients where it looked the same, remember that prostate exam on everybody. Inconsistent HPI and review of systems, assessment without a status, um, lack of continuity um, with it where it just seems like, wait a minute, we're taking care of the patient, there seems to be gaps in information. Um, what we call a note uh, bloat, in other words, it just, 
where all of a sudden it's there's so much we've got five pages even electronically of so much information it's like okay did we just pull everything over for this patient since the beginning of time why are they there today what's relevant today um, related to it um, time time's a huge thing now if that's what we're using to select our level of care. And so we need to make sure that that's appropriately documented, um, incomplete data reviewed and no source for the history with it. So keep in mind, it really is a process. It, there's no perfect solution. It's not gonna be, I've validated my auditing process and now I'm done. It's really gonna be more of a situation of, you know, I'm gonna assess, make sure I have policies, I'm gonna communicate it to staff, gonna train them, make sure they have it and here we go. So again, look at my areas within my organization. What are my guidelines related to reporting those? Who needs to know it? Who's really functioning as the coder? Again, sometimes the physician's the coder. Sometimes their staff's the coder. Um, training, make sure there's feedback. Um, just sending somebody an email is not training, right? We've got to make sure that we're truly updating. I mean, EM guidelines for 2021 is a huge one. What did we do to make sure that everybody has that knowledge so that we've implemented it correctly? and validating that anything we put in place is being implemented. Now, keep in mind, if we mentioned, if we're doing our audits and we find that there's a particular problem with it, we do have to give money back if there's an, an overpayment. So anything that we got paid above and beyond what we should have been paid by that payer, be it Medicare or anybody else, we owe that back to them. And so this could happen because of duplicate submissions, um, you know, a lot of different reasons uh, where they paid for things they shouldn't. It's not up to the payer to tell you they paid you by accident. They'll do it, they'll find it sometimes, but if we find that they shouldn't have paid us because it wasn't medically necessary or we build them in error, again, it's not just something that's gonna have a credit balance on there. So we can't do that. Well, well, they paid us, it must be accurate, right? Nope, that's not true. So think about those situations with modifier 25 and 59. Again, we're telling the payer you should pay me, but maybe we find out that they really shouldn't have. Um, exactly. Or Medicare, another example would be Medicare process the claim as primary when really this should have been secondary. If we find that, we've got to go back and, and give them the refund to give them the difference. Um, other things, again, let's just take within your practice, let's say you're doing a lot of things around, you know, injections or particular drugs and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, you think about the different amounts, some are, some are per milligram, some are per vial, um, you know, again, all the definitions are different. So you got to make sure that you're billing for those things appropriately with it. So they have what's called the 60-day refund requirement um, related to it. It basically starts a clock that once we identify completely that we know 100% that we got an overpayment, then we have to refund it. Now, keep in mind when you dig into this, and this is why we always recommend you have good legal counsel as you're looking at something around that 60-day um, piece of it, is that it's not just a 60-day. I mean, it could take up to three to six months actually to identify uh, that something was actually overpaid. It's not that you're dragging it out, but again, if you're really trying to make sure that all of it was handled appropriately um, related to that, but again, you have to know for a fact that that overpayment was there. But that definition is uh, a person is identified an overpayment when the person has have or should have through exercise of reasonable diligence determined the patient or excuse me determined the person has received an overpayment and qualified the amount of it or quantified the amount of it uh, for that particular piece. So you know they do want to make sure that you're using reasonable diligence. They want it to be proactive um, with it. So again, it's not just when somebody tells me we have a problem, but it's something where we we know we get into it and again we find it. But it, but keep in mind with identification, we cannot be blissfully ignorant, right? We And sometimes we'll have people say, don't tell me about it. I don't want to know what my issues are, but you have to. You got to get into knowing what your issues are. Um, and when we look at it again, you know, there was feedback that went back when they first tried to put it into play saying, what if things aren't our fault? And they basically said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter why it happened, whether it was the payer's fault, CMS's fault, whether it's the provider's fault, everybody has an obligation to make sure that Medicare gets their money back. 
So the 60-day clock doesn't start running until after the reasonable diligence period is concluded, which may take at most six months. So there's where that six months come in. So you can't stretch it out forever, but the 60-day clock doesn't start the minute somebody walks into the office and says, I think we got overpaid. You've you got to go through, you got to do your diligence, you got to make sure that the information um, is accurate. So it's technically not identified until the amount of that refund um, has been quantified with it. But if somebody knows that they do have a refund due and they choose to ignore it, that could be part of that False Claims Act. So again, it can become a big deal. And we have an obligation to go back six years because the question came up rightly so out of the gate was, well, how long does, you know, how far back do we have to go? So you have to go six years. So you gotta, you already have to keep information anyway from a clinical standpoint for at least seven years uh, with adults and things like that. So it's, uh, and pediatrics is longer uh, from that standpoint. So keep in mind, you potentially have to go back on that refund six years with it. So if you're giving money back to them, there's a variety of different ways you can do it. So you have choices, whether you just do a self-reported refund, you've got an adjustment, credit balance, that type of thing. Um, they're not always going to do that adjustment, okay? Sometimes they will do a recoupment, but keep in mind that's not always the case. So if they've identified there's a problem, they may recoup, but it's really on you to make sure that you proactively are communicating with them when you find that you have something. That could be one or two things, or it could be bigger. So whether you're following the CMS self-referral disclosure protocol or the OIG, you have to look those up with it. Um, doesn't matter, but again, having good legal counsel guide you through that process uh, becomes really important to make sure that you're doing things accurately with it. So I know we've covered a lot of information in a very short period of time, high level. We wanna make sure we're, we're monitoring our process. We wanna submit codes correctly. We wanna audit our process. And when we find that we have errors um, with that, we wanna make sure that we are communicating back to the payers proactively so that we are doing the right thing, right? And so we're reporting back, whether it's CMS or any other payer. So I will stop there, uh, Catherine, to see if we have any questions. Hey, thank you so much, Melody. Appreciate that. Um, we do have a few questions. Uh, the first being, what would be the top things you would recommend a practice focus on when starting an audit process or program? Uh, the good question. I, you know, I, it depends on the specialty um, within that. But if it's an office-based practice, I would really start with the E&Ms and looking at the the level distribution. And then also, if it's a practice that does inter-office procedures, making sure that we're billing Modifier 25 appropriately and that we're not automatically billing a visit level with it, because that's one of the areas that gets focused on. And then also, if we have any mid-levels in the practice, making sure that we're using using those appropriately, not just from a clinical standpoint, but that we're billing those appropriately. That's really what I that's really what I meant to say with that is that you know if we're if we're doing that, that we're billing appropriately under their name and number um, when it's appropriate. And if we are billing it as incident two and we're billing it under the physician's name and number that we're meeting all the criteria and guidelines for that. Okay. We have another question. I've heard that governmental agencies aren't really focused on healthcare audits at this time. Uh, do you believe that's true? You know, I'm, I'm sure that's what everybody would like to think. And I think with everything that's gone on with COVID and just other things going on with the government, it could be easy to think that. And I think anytime there's a transition in Washington, no matter who the transition is, you'll see those those audits kind of ebb and flow but we've not seen any indication that that really anything is letting down because this is big money right when they audit and they do things they find stuff unfortunately because it's one of those i think where it's a small percentage of the people out there that are doing the wrong thing on purpose but that small percentage make it difficult for everybody else because the into the, the governmental entities will say gee if there's this amount of people doing it there must be more um, so they're going to keep looking at it so unfortunately i don't really think that we can say they're not focused on it um, at all. I think we have to be prepared at all times. Yes, I think I've, I've heard that from um, a number of different um, presenters in, in different aspects from um, health law and um, mm -hmm. that a lot of different um, people are saying that. Um, so I think I think the notion that perhaps if, if um, that people are going to take it, that the government's going to take it a little bit easier is uh, the opposite. 
Uh, the opposite might be true right now. Okay, in light of the new EM guidelines, when do you think audits will begin specifically focusing on EM? Yeah, it's a hard one to tell because I think it's going to depend on the payers. Um, we might see the commercial payers jumping in more than CMS because we've already seen commercial payers start expect it, starting to tie diagnosis codes into certain levels because of medical necessity. And even though time can be one of the reasons, I think if it falls out of what they would call a mismatch with it, I think that you're going to see private payers start to push back on that a little bit more. And, and since we've already seen it in, in some environments, especially ED and some other things, I, I think we'll start to see it this year from private payers. As far as CMS and having an organized uh, focus on the audit piece, probably not till next year or so. But again, that's just an opinion. That's not fact. Um, we could see it earlier than that, but just given the transition um, that they're going through. But keep in mind, a lot of these entities that do um, things related to audit, these are these are uh, lifers, as we call them. I mean, these are professional staff members that are not political appointees. These people have, you know, while their bosses may be appointees and things like that, these are people that do their jobs year in and year out. And so they're not really driven by the, the politics of things. So they knew these code changes were coming and would anticipate that they would already be working on an audit program for it. Right, right. Okay, well, thank you so much, Melody. Do you have any other words of advice or things that you'd like to leave with us today to think about? You know, I think it's just, you know, this is compliance. It's just one of those things that just needs to become part of the culture of an organization. And it doesn't need to be perceived as something that's necessarily stressful or, you know, a necessary evil. I think if, if it's approached the right way within an organization, no matter what type of organization it is, the size of the organization, and it's just part of who you are, I think it can take away some of that stress. Because I know this is an area that some people do get stressed about. And I would say more knowledge is power. That's why if you're looking at what you're doing and you have assurances you're doing things correctly, that should give you peace and comfort and not stress uh, with that. So it's, it's an ongoing journey. It's something that'll never end uh, with that and, and just kind of in, embrace that for what it is and, and look at it from a positive standpoint. Okay. Well, I wanted to thank you uh, for being here and uh, for this presentation. It's uh, surely needed. So thank you so much, Melody. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay. Well, attendees, um, uh, please be sure to reach out to Melody for any um, questions that you might have. If you think of any, um, any later, um, you can also send us questions and we will forward them on to Melody Malik um, at Revenue Cycle Coding Strategies. And uh, please remember your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can also register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.